This is Marginalia, a production of KMUW Wichita. Marginalia. Notes in the margin of a book. Notes, commentary, and similar material written in the margin of a book. Comments and notes which are incidental incidental or additional to the main topic. topic in the margin of a book. When writing her novel, Songs in Ursa Major, Emma Brody was inspired when she learned about the relationship between Joni Mitchell and James Taylor. Her characters in the novel, Jane and Jesse, are loosely based on the singer-songwriters, as is the time, place, and overall vibe. But Brody presents songs in Ursa Major with an original voice as it explores addiction, mental illness, misogyny, and the music industry. I recently spoke with Emma Brody about her novel, her day job, and Freddie Mercury, her dog. I'm Beth Golay, this is Marginalia, and here's our conversation. Okay, so there was a scene in the book when the protagonist, Jane Quinn, was on a late-night talk show discussing her music, and the host, who clearly hadn't listened to any of her songs, asked about them and how she came up with them and about their meaning, to which she fired back, what are my songs about for you? So I promise that this is not one of those moments when I ask, (laughs) can you give us a brief overview of the book? so funny there are so many moments in the book that put people on guard <laughs> for that exact reason Jane goes through something and everyone's like uh <laughs> yes I can recap the book so songs in Ursa Major follows the early years of folk singer-songwriter Jane Quinn um and it kind of tracks her beginnings in a local garage band in her home on Bailing Island which is a Um, sort of fantasized version of Martha's Vineyard in the 1960s. Um, And it charts how she rises from basically an unknown to this singer, songwriter, soloist, uh, who has this groundbreaking confessional album, Songs in Ursa Major. And along the way, we get to meet her band, we get to meet her love interest, Jesse Reed, who's this like phenomenally hot folk musician in his own right, these great blue eyes, and he helps her along the way. And she's, you know, navigating everything, a young woman. Jane starts out as 19 in the book, and we see her up until age 22, um, would have been, you know, interacting with at that time from sexism within the music industry to preferential treatment for Jesse, to just like the, the double standards that women everywhere would have faced. And we get to meet her family as well. They're this really dynamic group of women who are seven generations into not marrying. <laughs> and so it's this really powerful tribe and they all, you know, support each other, help help each other raise their kids. It's really wonderful, you know, contrast to the kinds of things that Jane faces on the mainland. And I understand that part of your inspiration came from James Taylor and Joni Mitchell. Is that right? That's yeah, Absolutely. Um, when I realized that they had dated in real life, it kind of fired off a chain reaction in my brain because <laughs> um, I love both of them. But, you know, it's interesting. They're contemporaries and JT has always been, you know, something I associate with childhood and my family. My dad introduced me to him. Joni was someone I discovered later um, through actually through Mandy Moore's album coverage in 2004. So I really associate her with like being 15 and independent. (laughs) And, um, so I guess that's to say like they, you know, they're different artists. They each have their own legacies in the wider world, but then they also had their own legacies for me. And I think marrying up these two different points in my own life, somehow psychologically created this like web in my head. 
And I was just incredibly taken with the idea that these songs, like Blue is written about JT. Um, you Can Close Your Eyes is written about Joni. And these are things that are public. Like they both talk about them openly, but for whatever reason, our impressions of them culturally are as separate. And so none of it ever seems to really stick. I've never spoken to someone who was like, oh my God, yeah, of course they dated. No one seems to know, which I just think is so fascinating. And so this book kind of took the idea of this couple that was hidden by history, but had the surviving music and explored that. And, and my Jane and Jesse are incredibly different from both of them, but you know, there are definitely physical similarities and certainly there's a lot of blue in the book. You mentioned that this is, you know, set in history, based in history. Is there any modern day, like anything happening today that, that kind of is mirrored in the book at all? And I'm only asking because I know nothing about music nothing. Um, my daughters, I have, my daughters are 23 and 25 and they educate me. They try to educate me as best they can when my nose is not in a book. And so (laughs) I keep hearing about Taylor and the new album and how she had all of her songs stolen. And, and I couldn't help but feel like some of that was, you know, happening to Taylor 50 years after it had happened to this fictional Jane. So did, did any of anything that happened modern day influence anything in the book? I definitely, I mean, I wasn't thinking, I think I started writing this before the Taylor Swift Scooter Braun thing happened. Um, And when I saw it happen, I was like, of course. (laughs) And what I love about that is that Taylor uses her power as this phenomenal force to be reckoned with, to stand up, not just for herself, but for all the other artists who might go through something like this. Like she's uniquely situated to do something so radical as to record her entire back catalog to get away from this sharky person that was going to steal her own music. Like it's amazing. Um, and she's, she's totally a hero and most musicians aren't in a position to do something like that. So I think it's really wonderful. It's like, uh, Prince is another example of someone who was really unhappy with his record contract. And this was, you know, 20 years ago, but he, he, he basically recorded these like terrible albums to get out of a contract. And (laughs) it's, it's the, theatricality around some of these record contracts but it's like these beautiful creators who are stuck in in these horrible webs um yeah it definitely still happens I also think there's a wider a wider metaphor for just things that people face in general at work um I think there's a lot of what Jane goes through that happens to people on a daily basis in much less glamorous professions Okay, so there were a couple of mentions in the book about Theseus and the Minotaur and the thread. Can you talk to me about that mythology and how it found a place in the book? Absolutely. So Jane is in the process of of going through her own metamorphosis throughout the story, and she starts out living fairly surface level. It's a pretty happy opening where she's well-situated with her family, and she, you know, really, really, like, falls hard for this guy Jesse and it seems like everything's going to be fairly straightforward but then the further she goes into her creative process the more complicated we realize her psychology is and there are these forces at play that are kind of hidden in the beginning of the book and as we go further and further into Jane's journey of creative honesty we start to see um, that she can't go further without facing certain truths so the Theseus metaphor and sort of story that that is 
constantly at play is something that comes up when Jane's thinking about her mother, who is a failed singer songwriter who met a tragic end. And it's just basically this thing that we track through the book to sort of see where Jane is. And the further she gets into the maze, like basically Theseus um, is, is sent to Crete to go tackle this monster, the Minotaur. And um, the woman who loves him, Ariadne gives him a thread so he can find his way out of this maze that has killed so many people. And so the thread for Jane is essentially her music. And she's, you know, she's thinking about her mom and her mom's own thread and tether to sanity in the, in the main world. And she's also thinking about herself and, and her own creative journey and how far she's willing to push herself for her art. You know, a different thread was mentioned later in the book, and it was about the Quinn women. And I quote, we're an old island family and a crucial thread in the local tapestry. And you've already touched on this a little bit, but talk to me about the importance of these women and how they reacted to how, like, to the way women were treated at the time, especially in the music industry. So the Quins are a little bit apart from regular society. Like I set up Jane as having this sort of fantastic family of women and they're radical. Like they have lived apart from the institution of marriage since the whaling industry. I think I did a timeline when I first started writing this book and Jane's foremother Charlotte came over in like the 1830s. So it's seven generations of women that have foregone marriage and they've they've basically been living wild um, or wild by whatever the puritanical standards of the time would have been. So Jane comes to the 60s, which is a time where everyone is, is starting to experience liberation on a grand scale really for the first time, having inherited this legacy of you know feminist freedom that that is hers from beyond her own experience like she comes from a tribe of women where this is what they do they they don't live for male approval they financially support each other so they have freedom um and part of what i wanted to do with that was to show what it was like for someone who had never really experienced any sexism Um, because she lives on a small island. These women are an institution. So she has this sort of bubble of protection around her throughout her childhood. And then she goes into the real world and, and finds out what it's like. And I wanted to show what it would be like for someone who had, you know, these strong cultural beliefs that would keep her strong in the face of a lot of scrutiny and a lot of sexism pitted up against real menacing powers. I really loved the way she she had like her young fans in mind. Like she wanted to show I mean when faced with, you know, kowtowing to the man or showing a fan you don't have to answer to the man. She always had them in mind. So I did love that that she served as a, a great role model. That I love that. I love that insight because it's it's true. Like Jane comes from this family of women and we see how they all are examples for her. She's the youngest. And so then one of the things that I felt was really organic and just true to life when I was writing those scenes is that she's not thinking, oh, I want to be iconic. She's thinking of her older cousin, who's always been a mentor and a leader for her. And she's recognizing her own 
admiration that she had for the woman she modeled on in the face of this fan. And that gives her the strength to be iconic and to be that example. And I think that's kind of how it works. Like, I don't think courage comes from abstract things. I think it comes from what we know and the people who have touched us personally. I was reading an interview you gave, and I wanted to talk to you about the lyrics that appear in the book, because I understand from that interview that you had a collaboration with your brother. So do these songs exist where we can hear them? Some of them do. We actually (laughs) are producing, as we speak, a little video for Wallflower. My brother and a couple of his collaborators on his like music side put together a little EP and it sounds really good. They got this amazing female vocalist. It's, it's awesome. I wrote lyrics for all the songs because I wanted to be able to really write it as if they existed. And then it coincided with this sort of window that my brother, who's an incredible creator and musician, had a few summers ago where he was taking a break from his like bigger projects and was doing some acoustic work and needed lyrics. And I was like, oh, you need lyrics? Okay. <laughs> um, I happen to have some songs. And then selfishly, I got to kind of hear what he made of them. So I actually wrote a melody for Ursa Major that I kind of hummed in my head. And I have a melody for Lilac Waltz that I kind of hummed in my head. But um, he made up one for Wallflower. He did a bunch of them. And so it was a blast just to see that they actually work because I wrote them as fodder for the book and I never really expected them to hold water. And so being able to actually hear how they sounded with music and like what an actual musician would do and how he would phrase the words. I was amazing. I I mean, highly recommend <laughs> Are, oh, yeah. are you musical? Are you a musician as well? I am musical, but I'm not really a musician. Like I grew up in a house full of music. My mom's an opera singer. My brother's obviously very gifted. And I was given sort of fluency as a child and, and permission to explore that stuff. And I've always kind of tinkered around. Like I played violin when I was little, but I never really learned to read music it never really stuck. So that's definitely from me that Jane can't read music, at least initially. Um, and then in college, I did college acapella, which was a trip and <laughs> so much fun. And and definitely like where I got a feel for touring and, and recording and, um, you know, being in a band and all the drama. Because when you're in an acapella group, you're in like four bands at once. <laughs> so that that definitely helped. And also just understanding the anatomy of a song, because in acapella, you have to be able to break down any pop song into four parts or more parts. And so understanding like what a bass would have had to do at a given moment in a song, that was all like, I didn't even think about it while I was writing it. And then afterwards, I was like, how did I know that stuff? (laughs) Oh, right. Acapella. There you go. So you're not an instrument tamer, only with your voice. I'm not. not. (laughs) Although my brother is. My brother has those abilities. He can basically look at at different things and figure out how they work. He plays like seven or eight instruments. So I had some real life inspiration for that. And my best friend is also a concert pianist. So that made a huge impression on me when we were teenagers, like watching this like waifish young girl go up on stage and play these like really dynamic Greek concertos has stayed with me forever. This book touches on the stigma of mental illness, and I'm kind of wondering your thoughts about how much has changed from the time this book is set, which is like in the late 60s and early 70s to today. I mean, I'm sure treatments have changed, but has the stigma evolved much? 
I think it depends on what the diagnosis is. Like things like anxiety are very ubiquitous now. I feel like a lot of people have a relationship with depression or someone who has depression, but I think the, like, I don't want to say that those aren't heavy diagnoses because they can be absolutely paralyzing. Um, but some of the more like heightened ones like bipolar disorder, the book touches on schizophrenia. It's those still, I think are very widely misunderstood and definitely carry a stigma. I think people who have to carry those diagnoses, you know, live in fear of employers finding out like there's, I think there's still a lot of shame and, and lack of understanding around these certainly. But what's good about now is that we have so much more information and it's so, so much, it's, it's much more widely accessible. So people who are a lot younger, who exist outside of like a medical world would be able to read up on these things and be informed. Whereas part of what I found really fascinating about writing a book about this time was just thinking about the steps anyone would have to go through to get just the most basic information about anything. Like right now we can Google a question about anything that comes into our minds. And even just thinking through how Jane would have had to research her record contract or how she would have had to look up certain things pertaining to like the health of those around her, it would have been so much harder to get a straight answer or just any small amount of information. So I do think the proliferation of knowledge and, and just giving people like more of a passing familiarity with these things is serving to create more understanding and more acceptance. So um, there's a screenplay happening. So talk to me about that. Where are we in the process? And, and how does that differ from, you know, the novel? So we have a draft. Um, we're out with it to directors right now. So cross your fingers. I basically, I had really wonderful producers who worked really closely with me to adapt it. And it was a trip. It was a completely different art form than novel writing like you are showing everything you tell in a novel and telling everything you show. Um, so kind of getting into that headspace and realizing that it's a different medium, that was half the battle. And then from there, I feel like there are always these sort of ghost stories that come along with any story we choose to tell, like the road's not taken narratively speaking. And there were certain things in the book that I chose not to do because for the reading experience, which is inherently slower and more personal in, in certain ways, to get the effect I wanted, it was better to go the way that I did. But for the film, which is faster and more immediate, there were certain things that I was able to do that I wasn't able to for the book. So, you know, similar arc, similar story, but a lot of the scenes on a scene to scene level don't necessarily match up. So I think you would walk away from it with, my hope would be, with the same feeling, but I think it's very different. <laughs> Where we ended up was very different. Now, I wanna ask a couple of questions about your day job. You are an executive editor at Little Brown's Voracious Imprint, but you're also a writer. Do you find it difficult to separate, you know, the, your writing hat from your editing hat? Is it necessary to separate them? I try to separate them. Um, I'm very good at compartmentalizing. <laughs> Jane inherited that from me. So I, you know, I, I, when I'm at work, I try not to talk about the book, although my colleagues have all been very supportive of me doing this. 
And it helped that I actually started this particular position and the book was already in motion. So they kind of just had to accept it as, as it came. Um, but I've always been pretty open that I love to write. And I've actually had jobs within book publishing where I was kind of a writer in residence and generated a lot of original IP. So I've written like tons of games and guided journals. And, and the fact that I write and create is not something that I'm like in the closet about at all. But yeah, it's, I try, I want to give my authors who I work with, I, I predominantly at this point do illustrated nonfiction, which is great because I work with a lot of visual artists. So for a lot of them, the emphasis is more on the art and the presentation rather than the written word. And that is wonderful because I get to learn from their process and I get to help them. Um, and it doesn't really interfere with what I do in terms of my own fiction at all. Like I'm not, I'm not drawing from the same well. So it's, it's been a really nice symbiosis because I get to be around fiction editors. I get to learn from sort of like the general trade vibes in the air, but my own work is very separate from anything to do with that. And I try to keep it that way. Like I, I rarely buy books from agents that are in the space of fiction. Like I, ha it's very much church and state for me. And I've been lucky to be able to do that because of the books that I do. But you're adjacent to all of these these fiction editors, and and just knowing how the sausage is made in terms of the realities of publishing versus illusions that some authors might have, um, does it affect your writing or your expectations for the book? Yeah, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> um, it definitely does. I I think I have more fear. I think there are things that I wish I didn't know. But at the same time, knowing me and how paranoid I am, if I didn't know the truth and what I was up against, I'd probably be making up something worse. <laughs> so maybe it's actually for the best in the end. Um, there are aspects of it that are very helpful and I think have given me like good expectations. Like for example, I, I went into this knowing that bookmaking is a very long process full of starts and stops. And I understood sort of the natural ebbs and flows. Like there are natural parts in the process that drive you crazy because really nothing's happening. Um, and I went into that knowing that that would come. So that is an example of something where having my background actually was very helpful. Um, and then the parts that are harder are like knowing like just the business piece of it. And I wish I didn't because I think that would help me enjoy things and not try to quantify them, but it is what it is. I mean, I couldn't have written Willie or you know, any of the more business minded people in the book, if I didn't have that myself. So I found a, I found a use for it and <laughs> at the moment. And I have a very like patient husband who does a lot of unpaid therapy with me. <laughs> Are there any voracious books that you're excited about or you want to talk about that you've worked on? Oh my God, so many. Okay. So my, <laughs> my author, Grace Maselli, just came out with this phenomenal book, How to Deal, which actually tackles mental illness in this really wonderful way where it's relatable and humorous. And she does have these wonderful takeaways. And there are these moments that are really tender and empathetic. And her style is just glorious. She does this sort of digitized version of like magic marker art. And it's, it's so cool. She's just really wonderful. Um, I had a book come out earlier in the year called Everybody by Julia Rothman and Shana Feinberg. And it's basically like a cookbook format. And they're this incredible duo. They write a column for the New York Times. And this book was basically them crowdsourcing information about sex and bodies from 
like random people they met in New York and it's hundreds of different people giving their accounts of you know everything from like inadequacy to loneliness to like more like wonderful exciting stories and it's really really beautiful they got contributions from like hundreds of artists and it's just this like cookbook <laughs> about body positivity and information and it's really really wonderful and then I've got a few that are coming out in the fall which I'm excited for but those aren't quite ready yet um we just announced this book so let's talk about it by Jess Natalie and she runs this Instagram that's really really popular um called so you want to talk about and it's this amazing like 2 million follower thing where she has raised so much political awareness for various causes. And this book is like a primer on just like the basics of the American political system and the justice system. And it's a critique and it's really wonderful. And it's all these beautiful infographics. So that's coming in the fall. I'm really excited for that. One final question. Your dog's name is Freddie Mercury. <laughs> Talk to me about your dog. <laughs> Oh my God, you won't get me off, off of the Zoom. Um, Freddie is the best. He's a cockalier. So he's half King Charles Cavalier and half Cocker Spaniel. And he's perfect. He's, he's like a little toy. He's 26 pounds. He has a little heart-shaped nose. He's truly a celebrity. Uh, everywhere we go, people basically like could care less about me and my husband. And everyone just wants to be friends with Freddie. So he's, we've had him for a little over a year and he's, you can hear him. He can probably like hear me talking about him, but he's just the best. He's been the best thing during quarantine. It was right on cue. Now we've, we've talked about a lot, but is there anything that you want to talk about that I haven't asked? This is great. Your questions are so thoughtful and you've asked me things that people haven't asked me before, which is like amazing. I'm so flattered at how closely you read the book. Oh, thank you. Your laugh is infectious. I love it. <laughs> That's nice. <laughs> Classic defense mechanism. So. <laughs> the book comes out next Tuesday, yes? Yeah. Okay. And I'm trying to think of the date. It's the 22nd. Okay. It's tattooed so in my brain. It's also <laughs> the 50th anniversary of the Blue Album and my editor's birthday. Wow. Okay. So Songs in Ursa Major comes out June 22nd. Emma Brody, congratulations. Thank you so much. This has been so fun. That was Emma Brody, author of Songs in Ursa Major, which was published by Knopf. Thanks for joining us for Marginalia. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review. Marginalia was produced at KMUW Wichita. Our engineers are Mark Statzer and Torin Anderson. Our editor is Luann Stevens, and our producer is Haley Krausen. This is Marginalia, and for KMUW, I'm Beth Golay.